Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Andrew Duncan to this podcast. Dr. Duncan is an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Pittsburgh and is a member of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Duncan, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I know that your interests are in liver, liver therapy, liver regeneration, and so forth. Perhaps you can give our audience just a brief introduction to your science and where you're headed. Sure. So the liver is really an amazing organ. It's really the largest solid organ in the body, and it has some very unique features that have been known about for really over 100 years. So one of the things that pathologists noticed about 100 years ago, or even longer, was that hepatocytes are the normal cells in, in the liver that do most of the work. So these hepatocytes are unique because many of them don't have just one nucleus. Many of them have two nuclei, and then the nuclei have different degrees of DNA content. So each nucleus in a hepatocyte can be diploid, which is like most all the other cells in your body. They can also be tetraploid or octoploid and so on. So this is having greater amounts of DNA in every single cell. And this phenomenon is called polyploidy. So it turns out that polyploidy is a very big feature in the liver. If you look at mice, for example, up to 90% of the hepatocytes in mice are polyploid. If you look at humans, it's more like 50%. And what's striking is that this polyploidization, or the polyploidy, occurs primarily in adults. So if you start in very young individuals, almost all of the hepatocytes are diploid, and then the polyploidy increases with age. In fact, there's a very nice group in France who's shown that the polyploidization process, in rodents at least, begins at the time of weaning. So while the baby mice or rats are with mom, they're all diploid. And then certain changes occur at the time of weaning that are related to insulin signaling, and that pushes the cells to start to polyploidize. So what happens is the cells start to divide, they get two nuclei, and then cytokinesis fails. So you actually get a binucleated cell that has two diploid nuclei, and this is effectively a tetraploid. So this binucleation process goes on and on and on, and effectively making diploid, tetraploid, octoploid hepatocytes, and and they can even go even higher than that. For the most part, polyploid hepatocytes can be either mononucleated or binucleated, and exactly what these cells are doing, people don't really know. For a long time, people have speculated that these polyploid hepatocytes could do one of a variety of things. So the first idea that people have had is that polyploid hepatocytes are really just a stage of terminal differentiation. So during the life cycle of the liver and the hepatocyte, what happens according to this view is that hepatocytes start out as diploid, they begin to polyploidize, and once they become polyploid, they're effectively locked into that fate. And these polyploid hepatocytes that are terminally differentiated don't have any regenerative capacity. They just sit there and do whatever it is that they need to do. So that's the first view of these polyploid hepatocytes. The second view of the polyploid hepatocytes and what they could potentially be doing is that they're larger cells. They have multiple genomes, and maybe they work at an enhanced rate. Maybe these polyploid hepatocytes are more like metabolic machines or workhorses 
that can go on and carry out the functions of the liver doing metabolism or secretion or storage at an enhanced level, and that maintains the function of the liver. And the third idea is that maybe these polyploid hepatocytes, which have multiple genomes present, maybe they act as some kind of a buffer. So what happens is the liver is involved in the detoxification of all sorts of substances, including xenobiotics, and what happens is that they're subject to uh, mutagenic effects from these toxic compounds. So if you're a normal diploid hepatocyte and you get one copy of a chromosome that's mutated, maybe this is very bad for your cell. So the hypothesis goes that these polyploid hepatocytes, an octoploid, for example, may have eight copies of every single chromosome. It could be that these octoploid hepatocytes, if you mutate one copy, well, it's got seven more. So they're basically resistant to this type of an injury or this type of a mutagenic effect. So really, those are the three different ideas that people have had to say what's going on with these polyploid hepatocytes. So first of all, they're terminally differentiated. Secondly, they have enhanced functions. And thirdly, maybe they act more as a buffer for the cell. And I think that over the years, a number of pieces of data have come out to say that these different hypotheses, none of them are totally right. So some of the work that I've done that was initially as a postdoc when I was in Marcus Grampe's lab at Oregon Health and Science University, and now some of the studies that we're doing here in Pittsburgh have come to say that really these older views are not entirely right, and I think that the polyploidy, we can push it in other directions, and it has some very nice and unique applications in terms of liver regeneration and liver disease. Well, first of all, thank you for the overview, and I should note for our listeners that those that are interested in the details of the science that Dr. Duncan and his colleagues recently published a paper in the Journal of Clinical Investigation that goes into the details of what he just synopsized for us. But Dr. Duncan, for those who aren't as involved in the science as, as you and your colleagues are, what's the significance of these findings in this direction that you're headed? The findings are really pretty unique. I can tell you that over the last few years, we published a number of papers looking at the function of these polyploid hepatocytes. And previously, I told you there are these three main ideas that people have thought are describing what these polyploid hepatocytes are doing. And I can say that we've debunked some of those main ideas. So firstly, we address the idea that polyploid hepatocytes are just terminally differentiated and really don't do anything in terms of regeneration. So what we did, and this was published in a Nature paper in 2010, is that we took livers from old mice and isolated hepatocytes from these. And so these contained a combination of diploid, tetraploid, octoploid hepatocytes, and so on. And what we could do using flow cytometry is specifically pull out the polyploid hepatocytes. So what we did is we pulled out the highest polyploid hepatocytes we could get our hands on, which were the octoploids, and then we transplanted them into a mouse model for liver disease. And what we found is that these octoploid hepatocytes could regenerate the liver just fine. And this was pretty surprising because prior to this, people really believed that the polyploid hepatocytes wouldn't do much in terms of regeneration. So we actually did a competitive transplantation experiment where we put the octoploid hepatocytes from one donor with diploid hepatocytes from another. We transplanted them into this mouse model of liver failure and to our surprise, the polyploid hepatocytes worked just as well as the diploids. So this means that polyploid hepatocytes very nicely have the same regenerative capacity of the diploids. The big difference, of course, is that they have 
multiple genomes. So how exactly do they deal with these multiple genomes during their regeneration? And so what we did is we actually switched from doing transplantation experiments to doing this in the cell culture dish. So I took polyploid hepatocytes, put them in a cell culture dish, and then I made movies of these polyploid hepatocytes dividing. So the divisions were really amazing. What we could find is that the polyploid hepatocytes, they divided, of course, but what they did is they formed multipolar spindles. Normally when you have cell division, you get a bipolar spindle which means that one nucleus splits into two nuclei, which then gives rise to two daughter cells. Well, what we found with hepatocytes is that almost all of the polyploid hepatocytes formed multipolar spindles very early in mitosis. So in many cases, these multipolar spindles resolved into a bipolar arrangement, and then they divided to give rise to two daughter nuclei. But about 5% of the time, these multipolar spindles persisted and we got a true multipolar division. So in other words, a single hepatocyte could give rise to three daughter cells or four or even more. So this is something called a reductive division. If you have one cell that gives rise to more than two, it gives rise to not only to these multiple progeny, but the impact here is twofold. Number one is that the DNA content of the daughter cells can be reduced compared to the parent. So this means if we start with an octoploid, we could actually give rise to daughter cells that are diploid again. So that's a reductive division. And the second thing that happens, stemming from the multipolar divisions, is also we get chromosomal rearrangements. So what happens is as the cells and the nuclei are being rearranged and undergoing these multipolar divisions, you get chromosomal gains and losses that are associated with the daughter cells. So effectively, you have these dividing polyploid hepatocytes that can give rise to normal bipolar divisions, can give rise to very normal hepatocytes, but in addition to that, they also give rise to daughter hepatocytes of equal ploidy with chromosomal gains and losses, but also daughter hepatocytes with reduced ploidy. So the point is that as these polyploid hepatocytes are dividing, you get a lot of diversity that's generated. You get a whole host of rearrangements that occur, resulting in a lot of heterogeneity in the liver. So what we did next was that we actually went and karyotyped mouse livers from totally normal mice. So what you would expect if you do a karyotype, which is where you look at the chromosomal content of all the cells in the organ, wherever you're looking, you would expect to find two copies of each chromosome for a diploid cell or four copies of each chromosome for a tetraploid cell and so on. Well, what we actually found when we karyotyped hepatocytes from older mice is that there were numerous chromosomal gains and losses. So this was consistent with the idea that chromosomes were getting shuffled during these polyploid cell divisions. So we get a very high degree of aneuploidy. So aneuploidy refers to the gain and loss of discrete chromosomes. We karyotyped hepatocytes from 5-month-old mice and 12-month-old mice, and the degree of aneuploidy there was about 60 or 70 percent. Very surprisingly, we even karyotyped 3-week-old mice, 3 weeks old. This is right at the time of weaning, and about a quarter of the hepatocytes were aneuploid. So the aneuploidy was totally random. It hit chromosomes completely equally, and there were multiple types of aneuploidy in most of the daughter cells that we looked at. So first of all, I think we should just reaffirm for all our listeners that this process of cell division is the necessary function to maintain the vitality of tissue, liver included. And so as I understand what you've just shared with us, this is a question of 
what is the outcome of the cell division process that's taking place? Absolutely. That's a really nice way to say it. So we're wondering what happens as these polyploid hepatocytes are actually dividing. And like I just said, we were looking at what happens in the mouse hepatocytes, and we find that there's this tremendous amount of genetic diversity, or you could just call it aneuploidy, that exists in the liver. So those are mice. We next looked at what happens in humans, and this is a study that was published earlier this year in gastroenterology, and in this case we looked at the degree of aneuploidy that happens in humans. We actually looked at very young humans, young patients ranging from one to two years old, and we went all the way up into individuals who were in their 70s. Results were exactly the same as we had found in the mice. There was pervasive aneuploidy in every single patient that we looked at. In humans, it ranged from about 30 to 90% of the hepatocytes were aneuploid. And just like we had seen in the mice, the aneuploidy was totally random. So I think what this really means is that in your liver and in my liver, there's a lot of diversity. Our livers are just these very diverse microenvironments that the hepatocytes have many chromosomal gains and many chromosomal losses, which means one hepatocyte could be different from its nearest neighbor. What does that mean in terms of an aging liver, in terms of insults that all livers see from both environmental circumstances and, and cultural circumstances? And I guess before I even ask you to try to respond to this, I think it's important to point out this is a very fundamental science-based study that I presume is some time before it might yield clinically relevant results. But back to my question, what's the significance of what you've found so far? That's a great question. And I think this kind of gets into the question of why do we have polyploid hepatocytes to begin with? I think that the reason we have polyploid hepatocytes is so we can specifically have these multipolar divisions to generate the aneuploidy. So what's the aneuploidy doing? Well, the liver field would suggest that aneuploidy and cancer are totally related. I mean, that's one very sort of basic idea about aneuploidy. Well, the fact is, spontaneous liver cancer is quite rare. So here we have an organ where there's a lot of aneuploidy. In humans, it's up to 90% of the hepatocytes. But then liver cancer is quite rare. So what's going on? Why are we not all getting liver cancer? And I think that there must be some kind of a unique mechanism that's in play in the liver that hepatocytes have a unique kind of a regulation so that we're not all having uncontrolled growth. But what do I really think is going on with all this diversity or aneuploidy in the liver? We think that it's actually a mechanism that allows the liver to adapt to different forms of injury. So what I mean is that I think of the liver as this sort of a reservoir of genetic diversity. And the liver is involved in all sorts of different processes, including detoxification of xenobiotics. So it really sees a lot of nasty stuff. And it turns out that many different substances that we ingest coming from the environment or coming from various types of substances that we might take in can be toxic to our liver. It can kill our liver. The liver starts to die, leading to death of the individual. So what are these aneuploid hepatocytes doing? You know, I started thinking about this idea of genetic diversity when I read some papers from the yeast literature. So there's a lab run by Rong Lee at the Stowers Institute. And what they look at is yeast, and in fact, they look at aneuploidy in yeast. And what they found 
is that if you take aneuploid yeast cells and they knock out a vital motor protein, this is something that should basically kill all the yeast cells, and then they allow the yeast to basically recover, they can start growing again and they survive just fine. So what they found is that the way the yeast adapted to this injury is they became aneuploid. So the aneuploid yeast cells had some kind of an advantage that allowed them to get over that type of an insult, and they went on and thrived. So we wondered whether the same thing was true in the liver. Does the aneuploidy in the liver confer some sort of a selective advantage in response to stress? So that's basically the prevailing hypothesis that we're running on right now. And in fact, it's really not that crazy of an idea. In fact, we've gone on very recently in the Journal of Clinical Investigation paper that you just mentioned that came out very recently and showed that that's the case in the mouse. So in the mouse, what we showed is that we can give a mouse a chronic injury called tyrosinemia. This is basically a genetic model for hereditary tyrosinemia type 1, which is a human condition. So we have these mice that start to undergo liver failure. And what should happen is the entire liver should get sick and it should die. But what we found under these experimental conditions is that very early on, the liver contained very healthy-looking nodules. These looked basically like a very normal liver in a sea of disease and sickness. And given enough time, these healthy nodules, which were randomly dispersed throughout the liver, proliferated and regenerated the entire liver. These healthy nodules restored liver function and saved the life of the mouse. So what's unique is that we knew that there are a number of different ways we could actually get resistance to tyrosinemia. And what we found is that we looked at the chromosomes and all of the regenerated hepatocytes, and very clearly they were all aneuploid for a very particular type of aneuploidy. So they had all lost chromosome 16, which led to loss of a particular gene in the tyrosine pathway, which allowed the animals to adapt to this degree of tyrosinemia. So in other words, by expansion, what we think happened is that the liver had all of these pre-existing aneuploid hepatocytes sitting there that had lost chromosome 16. They were randomly scattered throughout the liver. And then under this type of a stress that happened, those aneuploid hepatocytes proliferated and restored the mass of the liver, leading to basically complete normal liver function. So if we look downstream, and again, as I said before, this is a very fundamental study. As I think about the translation of these technologies someday, I would think about three particular applications. One is, is to protect people from liver disease. Secondly is to predict outcomes in terms of, for example, personalized medicine and an assessment of health. And third is to treat liver disease. In terms of this technology that you're pursuing, which of these might these be applicable for? I think that all of those could be an application later on. We know in human liver disease, there's some papers from about 10 years ago where the scientists were looking at hepatitis C infections. So in hepatitis C infections, what happens is you get these cirrhotic nodules. You get a whole degree of cirrhosis in the liver, and the scar tissue are nodules of hepatocytes. And what this group found is that in hepatitis C infected patients, they looked at these nodules, and they found that about half of them were actually clonal in nature. So the group actually looked at liver sections from females, and they focused in on a phenomenon called X inactivation. So they showed that about half of these cirrhotic liver nodules contained either the maternal or paternal active X chromosome, 
suggesting that the nodules were clonal in nature. So I wonder, how is it that those nodules became clonal? I think that the clonal nodules were very healthy nodules in a sea of diseased liver tissue. And what we would predict from our work on aneuploidy is that they had some sort of an aneuploid clone that gave rise to a selective advantage in this sea of hepatitis C sickness. So it could be that the aneuploidy promoted resistance to the hepatitis C infection. So I think that in this case, these are naturally occurring aneuploid hepatocytes that promote resistance to disease within an individual. One of the things that we're beginning to look at in my lab right now is how does this aneuploidy play a role in resistance to other forms of disease like alcohol, liver disease. And so exactly what's going to show up there, we don't really know. And then the second way that you mentioned talking about as a diagnostic application, we could envision that there's an aneuploid karyotype that defines resistance to every single type of liver disease. Whether that's overambitious, I, I couldn't tell you right now, but it may be that there is an aneuploid karyotype that does promote resistance to different forms of disease. So if you have an individual with a liver injury, maybe you could then go and karyotype by a variety of ways and look at what kind of chromosomes are there and better diagnose what their disease really is. So I think that having a diagnostic tool or diagnostic kit based on the karyotype or the aneuploidy status of the liver could tell you a little more about what the disease pathogenesis really is. Very interesting. So the other area that occurs to me is, is organ transplantation, and specifically liver transplantation in this case. There's a premise to my question, presumably the technologies you're developing might minimize the need for organ transplantation, but is this technology that you're pursuing have any applicability to transplantation as well? I suppose there's maybe a twofold way to do it. One would be in whole organ transplantation. So in general, what the standard of practice, I think, is that older livers don't work as well as younger livers. So what I'm telling you based on our mouse studies and what it looks like is happening in the humans in my experiments is that the older polyploid hepatocytes have just as good of a regenerative potential as the younger hepatocytes. So how exactly is it that these older livers don't transplant as well as younger livers? I'm not quite sure where the dichotomy comes in right now. So that's certainly worth comparing kind of in a head-to-head -head situation. But the other way that you could think about doing it is not necessarily in whole organ transplantation, but in terms of doing it in cell therapy. So this would be the idea where you take a donor liver and you isolate the hepatocytes from that, and then you transplant them into one or more donors. If we can figure out ways that can get these polyploid hepatocytes proliferating just as well in the human situation as we can find in the mouse situation, then I think it basically opens up a whole other level of organs and more organs that are potentially available for transplantation. So Dr. Duncan, I want to thank you for spending this time with us today and sharing your very exciting and pioneering studies as it relates to liver therapy and liver disease. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us today. Thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Remind our listeners you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again in another two weeks, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.